Uh, there are some people that do that, and just a random fact that many of you may not be aware of, one of the facts of election fraud is an insincere ca uh, candidate who has an A last name or the earliest letter of the alphabet, and they actually don't want to be elected. They are just there on the ballot as a friend of someone further down to draw votes away from their main competitor, who is the B candidate. And occasionally they have been charged because they, all they were there for was to draw votes away from the B candidate so that the F candidate would get, because it was really a fight between B and F, and because F had a came further down the ballot, and the psychology of some people just go in there and vote for the same name they see, the first name, that would have given those votes to the B candidate, so we got an A candidate in there to draw all those votes away from him, and so it's really just a race between the B and the F. And maybe you all did that with the first option that we're giving you. You wondered how this came in, this politics thing. But uh, so we can start with that if uh, something else doesn't come up. And look at this uh, essential doctrine of the Godhead. Matthew, you're going to teach us some songs? All right, very good. Well, Grace asked for one this morning, but she's not even in here by the looks of it. Well, we, fig we figured out which one it is, but Nathan doesn't know it either. So, Nathan, maybe you can learn it with the rest of us, and then you can surprise her later on. 879. Um, and, Dad, you had suggested one sometime in the past couple of weeks now. Uh, we should. What's that? Oh, it's not? Hmm. Oh, I see. Okay. All right. So, 879. We got one backbencher over there who's not a regular. Eight eight seventy nine. <clears throat> I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. 
the highest joy I prize her heavenly ways her sweet communion solemn vows her hymns of love and praise Jesus our friend divine our Savior and our King, thy hand from every snare and foe shall great deliverance bring. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall begin the brightest glories earth can yield and brighter bliss of heaven. How did everyone do with that? <laughs> we got through it. Yeah, it sounded like it. Uh, did did somebody else have one they were hoping to learn? Storm? 113 in the gray? You don't know that one? Okay. This one, Storm? Yeah. Oh. oh that, that's what I asked. I said, you don't know it? I, I was surprised that there was a song in the gray book that you didn't know. <clears throat> yeah, we've sung it a number of times, but we can sing it again. <clears throat> A mind at perfect peace with God Oh, what a word is this A sinner reconciled By practice far, how very far from God, yeah. 
now by grace brought nigh to him through faith in Jesus' blood. So nigh, so very nigh to God, I cannot nearer be, for in the person of his Son I am as near as he. So dear, so God, more dear I cannot be, the love wherewith he loves the Son, such is his love to me. Why should I ever anxious be, since such a God is mine? He watches o'er me night and day, and tells me mine is thine. Uh, how about Jesus, King most wonderful, Thou conqueror renowned, Thou sweetest, most ineffable, truth begins to shine, then earthly vanities depart, then kindles love. 
love divine. Jesus, thy mercies are untold through which returning day thy love exceeds a thousandfold whatever we can say. May every heart confess thy name and anybody not know number 31 in the gray book? All right. Does anybody know 31 in the gray book? Okay. So, looks like most of us know it. <clears throat> we could sing it anyway. Uh, how have we been doing so far? Does anybody want to go over any of these again that we've already sung? The one we just finished? Do that one again? Why don't we do this one and then we'll do that one again? All right. 31 in the gray. <clears throat> Glory be to God on high and peace on earth descend. God comes down, he bows the sky and shows himself our friend. God the invisible appears, God the blessed, the great I am. Sojourns in this veil of tears, and Jesus is his name. Him the angels all adored, their maker and their king. 
Tidings of their humble Lord they know to mortals bring. Emptied of his majesty, of his dazzling glory shorn, being source begins to be, and God himself is born. See the eternal Son of God, a mortal Son of Man, dwelling in an earthly clod whom heaven cannot contain. Stand amazed, ye heavens, at this. See the Lord of earth and skies, humbled to the dust he is, and in a manger lies. We the sons of men rejoice, the Prince of Peace proclaim. With hands host, lift up our voice and shout Emmanuel's name. Knees and hearts to him we bow, of our flesh and of our bone. Jesus is our brother now, and God is all our own. All right, 153. Jesus, King most wonderful, Thou conqueror renowned, Thou sweetest, most ineffable, In whom all joys are Thou visitest the heart, then truth begins to shine, then earthly vanities depart, then kindles love divine. Jesus, thy mercies are untold through each returning day. Thy love exceeds a thousandfold whatever we can say. May every heart confess thy name, and ever 
and seeking thee itself in flame and seek thee more and more. May our tongues forever bless thee, may we love alone and ever in our lives express thee. in the gray. Father of uncreated light, fountain of life and source of Amen. 
up now? Or? I don't know um, what folks have thought about some of the verses that we've sung in some of the hymns, but they're quite mysterious. <laughs> they, uh, and when we are talking about uh, God, we are talking about the mystery of mysteries. So there, <laughs> you know, our Muslim friend, uh, Rehan, and we have had some discussion slash dispute about the Godhead, and he uh, engaged me for a number of hours on the Trinity because he believes it's uh, the weak point of Christianity because it doesn't make sense and it turns people away from God. And he was a bit, um, I think, disappointed when I said to him, that's not really where we depart. It's actually on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sins. That's what Christianity is all about. But um, need, nevertheless, let us look at it. So the, the idea of the Trinity, right? Not the idea. The word Trinity is not found in our Bible. And I don't like to use it for that reason. But I don't object to it in terms of meaning. Um, especially when people have tried different things. The biggest uh, objection we would have at this juncture in church history is with those who want to claim Jesus is an archangel or created being. That's where we would um, want to say that's not a Christian church, that's a cult. So that's where we're at today. But we do need to face squarely the historical fact that in the beginning of the gospel, the divinity of Jesus was not universally known. The entire epistle to the Hebrews is based on that. Consider how great this man was. Was written about the Lord Jesus. He's worthy of more glory than Moses. Unto which of the angels said he at any time, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool? The apostle spent a long treatise to lift up Christ uh, to the Hebrew Christians as the foundation for his exhortation that they should not turn back to Moses and the temple worship, which was about to be destroyed. So we should acknowledge, as a historical fact, that um, a full understanding of the divinity of Christ was not universal to all Christians, and it wasn't necessarily essential to salvation. I don't know if that's shocking. I do think it is today, because we have 2,000 years of church history, we have the complete 
New Testament, which they didn't have initially, and those things have been discussed openly in every place. And the only place that we would make some allowance for would be a new believer who is just coming to salvation. You'd be understand. You could have all sorts of wobbly thoughts about God, and that would be quite fine. But as a Christian who has studied the Bible and would come to the conclusion and would teach that Jesus is a created being or that he is an archangel, well, that would be heresy. That would be uh, grounds for you to be admonished and ultimately rejected from teaching in the assembly and perhaps from Christian fellowship. Because it, it's, it's very well established in the, in the New Testament. The apostles did all of that work for us. Having said that, uh, we're going to talk and, and then we're going to, you know, by preamble, so to speak, look at some scriptures. Having said that, uh, it's a mystery. And I'm not embarrassed by that fact. I think about everything is a mystery. I marvel at men who think they fully understand God because we are monotheists and this is it and that's that. So, well, that is very interesting. I've said to men repeatedly, you don't understand your wife and you live with her and you think you know everything about God. Like, this is ridiculous. There's even a joke, you know, a cartoon. You see a guy and he's, he's leaning on a book that's four feet, sitting on its side. It's four feet thick. And he has maybe the first foot open and he's leaning on it. And the caption is, finally published everything a man needs to know about women right it's just the point is that men after thousands of years are still puzzled by the wonder with whom they live and can touch and talk to and all of those things how much more is the eternal god a mystery i mean this is eternity you know well god has always existed right so the universe had a beginning there's nothing amazed at people say, yeah, 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 do you really think this through? God is eternal. It's easy to say. In math we talk about infinity, right? And infinity times infinity and all of these concepts that become so far from us that they're meaningless. They have meaning, but they're just too big for us. It's like trying to swallow the ocean. How can it be God is eternal? What does that mean? And then time had a beginning. What was before time? What will be after time? These things defy thought. To those that would object to the deity of Jesus. As I was challenged. How, you know, how is that any different from the Hindu. With their multiple gods and so on. Well, I think it is quite easy to distinguish between that. And I, I would be quite happy to have the conversation with someone. But um, they would, uh, some would say. You know, true monotheism. There is just one being called God. Alright. Fine. Can this God speak to you? What would they say? Um, so you would hear a sound that emanated from God. And then what happened to that sound? 
And what is that sound? Is that sound God? The trouble with so many of us is we don't really think very far. You know, a little bit past the edges of our nose and that's it. These things are huge mysteries. What is really going on in that? I had a man say to me, God doesn't think thoughts. I thought that was an interesting idea. I mean, I just didn't bother getting into it. How would you know? (laughs) How would you know that? But I think the idea is that God is immutable. He's unchangeable. And if he were to think a thought, that means he didn't think it before. He didn't know it. And therefore, God's learning stuff. And that can't be. And I would just... Okay. You're trying to reduce the eternal God to your finite understanding. And that's your whole trouble. Um, I had a scripture I wanted us to start with. And I have forgotten. I want us to start uh, to go into John chapter 1. Oh dear me, there was another one that was... Anyway, maybe it will come back to me. John chapter 1. There, there are a number of scriptures. Uh, there's First Corinthians. Uh, all right, yeah, they're all over the place. The scriptures are all over the Bible. All right, where are we here? Ah, yes, it's not Romans 15. One Corinthians 15. We could start here. right oh here we are okay first corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection uh right while we're in there a few more thoughts to bend our brains we're trying to we're, we're trying to grasp mentally what we know by faith and by experience and this is a great challenge um the atheist physicist or cosmologist Thomas Huxley. Uh, Thomas Huxley uh, was known, I think, as Darwin's bulldog. Everyone's heard of Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin, I believe, was an Anglican. He was orthodox in his theology, nominal in his Christianity, I think. He was initially going to train in theology Forget what happened. At some point along the way, he became disillusioned. His beloved sister, Annie, was dying. He prayed fervently that she would live, and she died. And I think that was the beginning of him losing faith. Ultimately, he finished up an agnostic. Don't know if he went full atheist. But his, his doctrines on the origin of species and the development, I think, of the superior races or something like that is the subtext of his book. And the notion of, you know, survival of the fittest and so on was presented as a challenge to, the, to biblical creation, which didn't really what people think, but anyhow. And Thomas Huxley, Huxley was a champion of Darwin's um, theory of evolution. And he was known as Darwin's bulldog because Darwin was just churning out the theory, but Huxley was trying to head-on take scientific community, 
head-on challenge church dogma. And there was a famous dispute between one of the archbishops or somebody and Thomas Huxley. And there's a famous line when the archbishop mocked Huxley and said, asked him which side of the family tree came from chimpanzees, his mother's side or his father's side. And Huxley shot back that I would rather a chimpanzee for an ancestor than a man who denies science, you know. And they all went out for tea after it was all over, so figure that out. But um, Thomas Huxley acknowledged as a physicist that when you fully understand everything that happens when a stone falls to the ground, and he's addressing biblical creation with this, Nothing is impossible to believe about biblical creation. He then went on to challenge and say, but where is the evidence? But understand this statement, brethren. This was a man contemplating atoms, atomic structure, gravity, the origin of matter. And he thought that this, a simple act that we see all the time, a stone falling was so miraculous and incomprehensible that no claim of the Bible was unbelievable by comparison. On its own. He just wanted to see evidence. That was what he was saying. No, I see some blank faces. I'm wondering if you get what, I'm, what he's actually meant. Okay. We see a stone falling thing, huh? He's thinking of the forces of gravity that keep all of the planets in place. He's thinking of atoms attracting to another. How's that stone come to be? He's thinking of the laws of physics, acceleration, matter, the origins of being. Like When you think about what went into that stone falling, angels, creation, like nothing is too hard to believe because we're confronted with something unbelievable just watching a stone fall. That was the point. That everywhere, at every turn, every single thing that we encounter, every millisecond of our existence is so mind-bogglingly miraculous that bring it on. Nothing's impossible because it's all impossible. That's the point. Einstein, Albert Einstein, we've heard of him, the theory of relativity and so on. Atheists claim he was an atheist. Christians claim he was a theist. He was neither of those things. He was what they call a pantheist where God was everything, and he used the word God, but he rejected religion, he rejected the Bible and all biblical texts. But um, he believed in some creating creator. He wondered if the creator had any choice in the kind of universe that would exist. Now these are men that are out there. They are studying the stars, they are looking at gravity and how everything comes. They, we spend our days making you know, furniture and cotton grass and so on. And we just ho-hum. We, we pass by miracles continuously without ever thinking about them. And these are men that try and figure out why wood is wood and stone is stone when they're all made up of exactly the same protons, neutrons, and electrons. And why you walk instead of float and gravity and what keeps the planets. They're working this all out mathematically. Their brains are out there. And he wondered if another kind of universe was possible, or if God only had one choice. Now that's something really you have to think about. He claimed, he said he wanted to know how God did it, how God made the universe. I want to know the thoughts of God. This was Albert Einstein, who did not believe that there was a personal creator that you could know. 
as far as I'm aware from his writings. Why are we talking about all this? Because, brethren, we are talking about the same thing they are talking about. We're trying to understand the essential nature of God, and it really is beyond us to fully understand it. So how's that for an introduction? Paul wrote this. I'll I'll throw one more out for us that we're really all familiar with. All right? The body of Christ. We're all familiar with that term? Let me use the other hand so I don't hurt myself and go, ow, right here. We're all familiar with that term? The body of Christ? Yeah. Got the concept? You're all members of Christ? Everyone got that? So the hands cannot, the the eyes, the, the mouth, which one? The hands cannot say to the feet, I have no need of thee. Is that the text? Something like that. So, you could be a hand or you could be a foot. How does that work? How does that work? Where you have a multitude of personalities, each with their own thoughts, and yet comparatively, they're just a body part. Do you really understand that? You are the body of Christ. Not just our small congregation, but collectively now, every congregation Millions, billions of people from the dawn of time till now. Or the dawn of humans till now. All together make up the body of which Christ is the head. What is that really? Just try and figure it out. So my toe has a brain, that toe has a brain. They all have like, they're all individual personalities to make up what like, Can you really grasp that concept? That collectively all of the redeemed of the Lord are one single entity? That you and your personality and your capacity for thought and love are as a single cell in the bride of Christ. Is that really a concept you can understand? If it is, I'd like to touch the hem of your garment before you go home. Right? Like these things are, when we really try and get a firm grip on anything, it's quite elusive. Here's one to think of. Let's start then in 1 Corinthians 15. Because we're talking now about the Godhead. We'll break in in verse 22. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Listen to these words, brethren. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Everybody understand that? Perfectly. Very good. Class dismissed. We can go. Hmm? <clears throat> now, 
it reads like there's a difference between Jesus and God in that text. They are separate entities. At first glance, but really there is um, the Father. He shall, well, look in verse 24, Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. So here you have he, Jesus, delivering up the kingdom to God and the Father. Which suggests that the Father is God and Jesus isn't. This would be where the what are called non-Trinitarians would get there. Some of their ammunition. But let's keep our finger there. And turn to 1 Timothy. Oh, I beg your pardon. Hmm, I thought it was. Yes, I thought it was 1 Timothy chapter 3. Yes, there it is. That's just where I thought it was. Why couldn't I see it before? Thanks for that. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Now, the last one is not in sequence per se, but the others are a sequence. It's a formula, a creed that the early church developed. God was manifest in the flesh, Jesus incarnate, justified in the spirit. This is his death and resurrection. Seen of angels, this is the apostles, preached unto the Gentiles by those apostles, believed on in the world by the Gentiles to whom it was preached. This is a formula that he had been received up into glory. It's a whole program in a verse. But it was God manifest in the flesh. Not only that, and the time would fail. Um, Paul said, well, we, we'll look there as well. I'm still in 1 Corinthians 15, but we're going to Acts chapter 20. And verse 28, Paul counseling the Ephesian elders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. <clears throat> the blood of Jesus was the blood of God. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 now. <clears throat> and this is the theology behind the thing. We're not going to get into the thing, the head covering. I would have you know, verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. All right. Now, <clears throat> what we are seeing is this vacillation between making a distinction between Christ and God and making no distinction between Christ and God in various scriptures. That's what we're seeing. John chapter 1. 
In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All right? And this is, uh, this is really uh, a good place to begin. I know the others preamble and backdrop. Because it addresses the mystery. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Ah, oh, this is the passage I wanted to start with right before John 1. So we'll leave our finger there and go there into Romans chapter 1. Just orbited back into my aging mind. Romans chapter 1. We'll break in in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. The psalmist said. So the created world. Teaches us the very nature of the Godhead. Right? They are types and figures and shadows. And I would submit to us. That the sun around which our planet orbits. Is one picture of that. It's a limited picture, but it's a picture. And I would submit that it is a way of understanding the Godhead. I don't mean we worship the sun like the pagans did. And there's a few sun worshippers alive today. They've revived that old thing. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. Why not? Anything goes flat earth. You have it all to yourself. The sun just try and contemplate this mystery here. If we were to go outside, we could look at the sun and say, there it is, right? It's this small looking ball in the sky. It looks small because we're so far from it. But there it is. It has a geographical location. If it wasn't so hot, we could fly there. Uh, well, not just the heat, but the whole logistics of getting our own spacecraft and the oxygen and so on. But in theory... If it wasn't so hot, we could go there and, and actually, you know, hug it and get inside and be in heaven, so to speak, with the sun. That's, there are laws of physics that would prevent us from that. We'd be torched. But uh, there it is. It's there. Now, it's a picture for us. We're living on earth. We, we can, in theory, grasp the vastness of the universe that really our solar system is like a speck in the entire universe. That's how small we are. And so this is insignificant. But so far as our day-to-day experience is concerned, that sun shines everywhere. Shines to the moon, shines to earth, everywhere on earth. Everywhere we can go and see, the sunlight is. So what that means in our experience is that sun is omnipresent. That sun both has a physical location, and yet its light is here with us and everywhere. 
And it's heat, it's warmth is here with us and everywhere. So we have three distinct features. We have, and they're all there. The, the heat is there, the light is there, but the light and the heat are everywhere. And they are, does that light that enables us to see, is that not part of the sun? Like, does it just kind of fall to the ground? Does it peter out? It's, it's this constant being or object because it's not personal but it's a picture that is everywhere and yet it's light it's heat and itself are three distinct yet inseparable you following how my brain is trying to here's this little ant trying to understand this eternal and there we have a picture it's there we can see it and yet, it's, look, because of it, we can see the grass. We can feel its rays coming through the window pane. And those rays have an uninterrupted link. They are one. So although that sun is there, it's here. It's everywhere. All at once. Instantly. Simultaneously. It's there and yet everywhere. <laughs> it's distinct there, and yet we can see its rays here. We can interact with its rays here. And we can gaze away at it there. We can close our eyes and feel it. It's warm to envelop us here. But it's really there. Is that a fair comparison? And the light of the sun and the warmth of the sun and the sun itself are inseparable. You never have one without the other two. This light here, that you can feel, you know, if you're at an angle, you can see the rays coming through. If that sun were to cease to exist, so would that light. Just simultaneously. So, they're not separate from each other, ever. They are one entity, and yet distinct, and yet... All right? And this is how I would understand the nature of the Godhead. Taking my instruction from Paul that the invisible things of him, sorry, that are, are known by his creation, even his Godhead. And so, it is conceivable to me that if the sun had personality and could talk, that that sun could talk to its rays here. Even though its rays are it. And, and could shed its warmth more abundantly on the people in Jamaica than the people in Canada. Evidently, they get an outpouring of the warmth in the tropics, and we get a little bit here at this time of year. So it would seem. This is how I would understand it. And now if you want to extend the metaphor in the beginning, you know, let's take the sun. Was the, in the beginning was the light, and the light was with the sun, and the light was the sun. Would that work as a statement? The light was with the sun. You can see it. And the light is the sun because it's not something different from it. It is a limited picture as pictures are limited, and illustrations are limited. 
but they give my meager human brain the opportunity to at least have some semblance of understanding how three can be one. John wrote this, and I know, in case you don't know, this is a disputed text. You can only share this text with somebody that accepts that your English King James Bible is the Word of God. But it's a disputed text. First John 5, 6, 7, and 8, uh, 7 and 8. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. So that is a disputed text that um, most moderns reject as uh, an addition to the text. And there is a debate over it and that it was in the text, it was excised out and later put back in by those that knew. And there's evidence that it was there and known. It goes back to Tertullian quoting it. And I'm not really interested in, in that debate although I satisfied myself with the truth of the matter by my own research, I accept it by faith as the word of God, and it's certainly true in any case. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. <clears throat> now, I'd like us to turn to Joel chapter 2, I believe. And understand uh, a bit. It's right after Hosea, I think. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your daughter shall prophesy. So this is, um, and also upon the servants, upon the handmaids in those days, will I pour out my spirit. So this is the Father speaking through the Son to the people that he will give them the Holy Ghost. Um, it's another passage I wanted us to look at. Um, oh yes, the Revelation. <coughs> Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you, listen now brethren, and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He goes on. and Now there's a mystery here. He does not say, and from the four creatures that surround the throne and from the 24 elders. 
because the three from whom this message comes, peace, grace be unto you, and peace from God the Father. Right? From him, it is referred to, from him which is, which was, and which is to come, that's the Father. From the seven spirits which are before his throne, that's the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, that's the Son. The sun in the sky is the source of the sun here and the heat here. But they are all indistinguishable. They're all simultaneously existing. The, the sun here did not come and exist after the sun there. They're all, for the purposes of our illustration, eternally existing. Right? It's not like first there was a sun, then the sun got tired of just being a ball by itself, and so now, boom, it created light that was now here, and, and heat. The, although the light that we see here emanates from the sun, it eternally existed. Now, I know the sun had a beginning, but we're just, for the sake of our discussion, that sun was before we were. It's eternally existing. The Word is eternally existing. The Holy Spirit is eternally existing. The Father, uh, the, old, um, the old theologians in the Latin discussions on it, fons divinatus, right? The divine fountain, the source, the geographical sun, right? We talk about our Father which art in heaven. Right? This is where the geographical residence of God is but through the Holy Spirit and the word he is everywhere these concepts are really bigger than us it's like trying to explain flight to an earthworm just no concept just wiggling on the ground and in the dirt that's it to try and get an earthworm to grasp flight it's just good luck right so we're using limited pictures. How can we understand an eternal being? Except that our memories have a form, right? You can't remember a time when you didn't exist. You're a little I am. You just have an awareness of existing. You don't have an awareness of ever coming into being, right? It's a little bit of a picture. Just wrap your head around that. You know, our memories... You know, a little child, but somehow there's a break between infant. No one of us remember being born. What a ghastly thought that would be. That would be quite a thing to remember. You know, but somewhere our babyhood gets completely forgotten and our last memory goes back to somewhere where we can walk and talk and move around. And that's it. We've got that. So as far as we can sense, we've always existed. We can't really conceive of not being. We're little I ams, right? Um... And that's a picture for us as well. God is eternally existing. His word, which is an expression of himself, is eternally existing. His spirit is eternally existing. And they, <laughs> these three are one. Is one God and <laughs> this is a mystery. But I would submit to you that it is, the son is a mystery. And when you try and parse what's going on there, it's a reasonable illustration. And God made it that way. The things 
that may be known of God, even his Godhead, are known by the things that are made and seen. So the apostle wrote, which is understanding, and you have one being that is three yet one. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this enables this one being, this Father which is in heaven, to pour out His Spirit, and that Spirit which is inseparable from the Father can dwell in your heart. One word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, through whom the Father speaks. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So Jesus Christ's very being and existence as the Word was God speaking to us. This is the light. In another picture of him, he's the light. The light of the world is Jesus, we see. He, he reveals the very personality and nature of God in man. The physical body of Jesus Christ had a beginning in time. And this is a mystery. God experienced time. Eternal experienced time. He spoke. He said, let there be light. And there was light. The eternal God created time and has interacted with it, though he knew the end from the beginning. And he went through specific experiences in time that he knew he would experience before he created time. If that doesn't tax your understanding, I really want to touch the other hem of your garment before you leave. These things are challenging to grasp, as infinity is challenging to grasp. Um... For some of us, electricity is too hard to grasp, and yet we flick switches. We know it exists, and we turn the switch on, and we stay in the light. We avoid stubbing our toes, and so on. But I would submit to you that this, the, the, the truth that Jesus, the man Jesus Christ, was God himself, clothing himself with human flesh, and interacting with his creation is as reasonable and as true, more reasonable, more true, than the light of the sun shining through the pane of glass here and the warmth of the sun comforting you on a cool day. It's a similar kind of concept. One being very low, one being very high, but parallel. That Jesus is the very expression of God himself. He wasn't merely an angel or it wasn't, you know, a phantom that was moved around, a puppet moved around by God. But the very word of God himself speaking to mankind. And that the Holy Spirit, who has been active in the Old Testament prophets, even so. And is that um, aspect and faculty and being and personality of the Godhead that inspires men not only in righteousness and in revealing Christ but in art and technology. Bezalel and her were skilled craftsmen and that genius in craftsmanship was a result of the Holy Spirit in them. 
And that Holy Spirit may augment the natural intelligence of unbelievers as instruments of God in the world. Wouldn't rule that out at all. And that there may be entire times and seasons in civilizations where there's a great uh, um, swell and revival of intelligence and craftsmanship and ingenuity that is brought about by the Holy Spirit's um, influence on humanity, even if they are not worshippers of God, because we're all his creatures. All souls are mine, the prophet said. The Holy Spirit is the agent that uh, part of God, if I can use part concerning God, whereby he interacts um, inwardly with men. Christ is that aspect and part of the divine whereby God speaks to men. And all of this emanates from God who is in heaven. The picture of heaven is high above us. But when you think of an Australian and a Canadian praying at the same time to their Father in heaven and they're both looking up, you realize that, as Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. And heaven is all around, beneath, above, beyond the universe, in a different dimension. Are there any questions? Have we made any ground in our understanding? Or are we more confused than when we started? We've not thought about it before. I'll say something controversial for you, just in case you haven't had enough yet. You don't pray to Jesus. You pray to the Father. I mean, I know some of us do pray to Jesus, but we're the only ones. You know. And the millions of people who are just like us. But... But Paul said, I bow my knee, bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, pray, our Father which art in heaven. I wouldn't say it's a sin. It's just mildly ignorant. <laughs> I'm really going to get run out of town, you know, I just say these things. But think about it. The apostle never did. He said, well, he spoke to the Lord. That's right. Because he is the word of God and he appeared and stood with him and strengthened him and spoke to him and he spoke back. But when he's on his knees praying, he's praying to the Father. I am the vine, my Father is the husbandman. Christ in you. You don't pray in you, you don't pray to what's in you, you pray to the Father in heaven. It's good to, I mean, when we pray, you know, you will hear people. Um, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bless so-and-so, Father, and that you would do this, Lord. And Jesus, please do this. And Father, will you do that in Jesus' name? And if you try and unpack that, it's confused. And people just are not thinking. Now, don't get all self-conscious, will you, about your praying. God understands, and all of us are grossly ignorant. And we're like a little nursery, and we make funny sounds, and our loving Heavenly Father just understands what we want and what we need. And you know, we're all just toddlers in the nursery, really. Let's, so let's not worry about it. You don't see a self-conscious toddler, do you? They're just simple, so let us carry on being like that. But, uh, hmm, I mean, if I'd have pre-thought all of this, I might not have gone down this, this uh, road. But while we're here, we pray to the Father in Jesus' name. 
And he answers through the Holy Ghost. That's really what's happening. Um, can you think of a single instance of anyone in the New Testament praying to the Lord Jesus in heaven? There is one. What's that? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Yeah, because that's where he was going. He saw heaven opened, and that was it. He fell asleep. So I say it's not a sin, but... When you read about instructions to prayer, examples of prayer, when you are on your knees praying, there's no vision, right? This is the thing. Remember I said that the Lord appeared to Paul and spoke with Paul and Paul spoke with him. He's the word of God. This is communion. But when you are supplicating for action in the world, you're praying to the Father. And these three are one, the Lord Jesus um, said, I and my Father are one. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Right? This is, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. So, this is, uh, there, there is not a competition in the Godhead. Let's be clear. Father is all in all. And Christ and the Holy Spirit are uh, one with God. They... Um, these three are one. Christ dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. He rules and directs. And uh, the Father acts in providence and in, in uh, history. He, I am the vine. My Father's the husband. Christ said that prophetically, so to speak, because he was going to die and be raised from the dead. And they would literally be partaking of him. But the father is the one who acts in circumstance, in providence, in history. If we could say this. They, um, they prayed, thou Lord, you know, um, grant that signs and wonders be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Stretch forth thy hand to heal. You can see how they prayed. Prayers were made exclusively to the father um, but when we had visions of God, the vision we see is of Christ. Christ is the one speaking and there is uh, direct communication. Even if it's when you're about to go and see him. So, Hopefully, this has been uh, helpful in our understanding, not more confusing. Yes, brother. Yes. Well, yes. John one one. Yes. 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 So, I, the way that I came to our conclusion was that Jesus became Jesus when he became flesh. Yes. But before he was flesh, like in the, what did you 
Correct. 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 So for those listening, um, uh, the tape or in the car or whatever, we'll review that. So we're in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Then in 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And then in Revelation 19, he had a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And so the eternal, there are three. These three are one, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. The Word is eternal, but the man, Christ Jesus, had a beginning. And the Word, when he returned to heaven, retained the name of Jesus. But he was not named Jesus before he took upon himself a human body. That would be my understanding as well. That God participated in his creation. And he did so at a point in time. Now, for some monotheists, Jew and Muslim, they would say that is impossible. Because God is internal, he's immutable. Immutable means he cannot change. And that would mean that God had experience and God changed. And that's impossible. And I would simply say, says you, it's impossible. But I worship a really powerful God and he can do that. So, next hard question. So that would be my rebuttal. Now, they want to say, logically, that's impossible because then he wouldn't be God. And I'm just like, whatever, you're going to find out one day. But, um, yes, our God is so powerful, he can clothe himself with humanity and come and speak to us. He's so powerful that he can put his own spirit within us. So we're not just groping in the dark. He's so powerful that he can have communion with us. He can enable us to have communion with him. That he's not like a stone that is there, but you can have no real intimacy with. And I would argue that that is a much more powerful God than the one that can't do those things. And I don't mean the silly notion, can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? You see that silly trap? Because... If he can make a rock so big that he can't lift it, he's not God because he can't lift a rock. And if he can't make a rock that heavy, then he's not God because he can't make a heavy rock. And it's just ridiculous, silly nonsense. Paul said, avoid foolish questions. And that is a foolish question. So, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about can God make a creation and then go and have intimate communion with that creation? That's a question. That's an intelligent question. And our answer to that is yes, he can and he did. And I would argue that a God who cannot do that is not God. Even a child can make a train set and get in there and play with it. Much less a God that can't have fellowship with I mean, people get pets and all that. And they hug their dogs. I mean, knock yourself out. I won't be doing that. Smelly creatures. But, um, but God is so powerful, he can, and so omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, that he can put himself 
within every one of his people without diminishing himself at all. That's power. That's a God that is boundless and unlimited. Amen. Have we made any progress? Or did we, did we all know this before? Are we now more confused than we were before? Or less informed rather? How are we doing? Does it shed any light? Yes or no? Oh, another question. Sure. Yes, the function of the Holy Spirit. But you want us to talk about that? Okay. Sometimes I tease my children. I say it's obvious. Um, the answer, you know. So the Holy Spirit is the agent that makes all of those things real in experience. So uh, healing is done in Jesus' name. At the command of the Father through the agency and activity of the Holy Spirit. This is the power. This is the, the manifestation of the power of God active amongst humans is by the Holy Spirit. Did that add any clarity or was that a non-answer? You can hit me hard. Straight. Oh, you're trying to tri- tri- trip me up? Oh, no, but did that, did that answer the question? But the Holy Spirit is the is that's God within. Christ in you, the, whole, the hope of glory, is accomplished by the indwelling Spirit. And these three are one, so you don't have one without the other. So, for our brains to have some concept, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So now, geographically... And it's just a picture, right? Because we're dealing with the spiritual world. They would be in heaven together as one. And the Holy Spirit is how God interacts on earth. Everywhere. So that would be. If we were asked to explain, quote unquote, the Trinity to our friend or neighbor, could we all do it? Yeah, all right. What would make us more confident to do that? Some would argue um, that, and I, I don't, I don't. I'm not thoroughly versed in the history at all. But uh, just from the New Testament, it's apparent the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels or spirits. Um, It's this life only. The Pharisees believed in resurrection and in angels and in spirits and so on, supernatural. So, (coughs) the Nature of Messiah, the King, the Son of David. Uh, The disciples believed that Messiah was a divine being. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said. But 
that was not the only opinion. Whose son? What think you of Christ? Whose son is he? They say the son of David. So clearly the prevailing view was that Messiah was going to be a special human whom God um, brought into being as a um, uh, king of kings to create a, nation, uh, an, a kingdom of Israel that was so powerful it would rule over all the other kingdoms of the earth. That's what they were expecting. And there was not a consistency of belief by any means, I don't think it was the majority opinion, that Messiah would be divine. That's why he said, uh, that's why the Lord said, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say, the son of David. He said, well, David calls him Lord. How is he his son? Like, hmm. you know? But they also said, art thou the Christ, the son of the blessed? So there were differing beliefs on what Messiah was whether he was merely a man anointed of God or whether he was a divine being. That was not a uniform Jewish belief uh, at the time. And they don't have, there's <laughs> no such thing as a uniform Jewish belief. Uh, I remember a Jewish speaker saying, when you have two Jews, you have three opinions, right? Uh, because they are very fractious. I think the Israeli parliament is the most fractured um, democratic parliament in the world. They, they have more parties than members of parliament. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not by much. There's so many parties in the Knesset because they're so diverse in their opinions. And there is a sect of Judaism. I don't know where they are today, but the Lubavitch Hasidim, I mean, we could roughly call them the charismatic Jews. They're ultra-Orthodox, black hat and all of those things, very zealous. But they had a human... Um, rabbi, whom they all venerated, uh, Rebbe, uh, R-E-B-B-E, that was his title, the Reb Schneerson, I forget his, Menachem Schneerson, something like that. Schneerson was his last name. And they believed he was a Messiah. And when he died, they still believed he was a Messiah. And they believed he was divine. And there were Orthodox Jews, like the Baptist Jews, you know, cessationists, that wanted the Hasidic Jews kicked out of Judaism because their complaint was this, that they believe about their deceased Reb everything that Christians believe about Jesus except his substitutionary death on the cross. In other words, they believed he was the divine, the creator, God manifest in the flesh, and that he existed now in glory though he was dead. These are Jews. And some of those Hasidic Jews were chief rabbis in the nation of Israel while holding that belief. But because they're Jews, they can get away with it. If they were Christians, it's idolatry. And the Jewish writer who I was reading recognized the hypocrisy of this and wanted them booted out of the fellowship of Judaism. He was sounding the alarm on that. What the end result was, I don't know. But... Just pointing out that even today, there's a small faction of Jews, at least, that believe that the Messiah is divine. And then you got the like the United Church of, of Reform Judaism. They don't even believe in a literal Messiah. There's going to be a Messianic age, like a golden age, but not a literal Messiah. So there's a range of beliefs. And uh, there was at the time of Christ as well. That's just by the board. 
well, well, in one hour we sorted out that theological uh, challenge for everyone. That's great that we could make such ground so quickly. Any any questions, brethren, or anything to comment or to illuminate or to, to add? Sean? Okay, so Sean's saying that the trouble that many of us have in proving these three are one, that they are all God, that they are He, <laughs> is because we lack familiarity with the Scripture. So there's some incentive to not just do what some cults do and have our proof texts, but just be saturated with the Scripture. And it dawns on us, right? Um, Christ is the Word of God. This is how we know God, is through Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit dwelling within is the one that illuminates to us Christ. Amazingly, we are now members of his body and of his bone. You're going to be touching on this. is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That we are members of his body and of his bone. That we have been redeemed, regenerated and brought into the Godhead. You've got a tall task ahead of you, brother, to elucidate that, <laughs> that mystery. Uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right. Well, should we leave it there? It's four o'clock. Or did we have more to do for our session here this afternoon? Are we done? Should we go on? It's nothing. Okay, so the teacher's just going to have to dismiss the class. There's nobody... Uh, <laughs> Who's awake you know, out there? So. Uh, it is a, this is a, a serious subject. It's a deep subject. But I hope we can at least see that this is what is. Right? Uh, if we cannot fully understand how it is this way, we can at least know that it is this way. Amen? That... Um, and we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son... To be the savior of the world. That God. And we, we haven't even gone into the, uh, into the Proverbs. you know, Wisdom personified. I was with him daily. The rejoicing of his heart. Wisdom. Speaking as if wisdom is a separate and distinct entity from the creator. And how these things are there. This is a, a great thing to ponder our whole lives long. The mystery of God and of Christ. But these things are so. Jesus, the man Jesus, had a beginning in time. But that beginning, the man Jesus, was um, the result. <laughs> it was the word of God coming into uh, humanity. At the precise moment, the Holy Spirit created that body of his as seed form in the womb of Mary.
in that moment of time. The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. So the Holy Spirit is the agent of God by which the Father moves and created the body of Christ in microscopic form in the womb of Mary at the precise instant the Word himself indwelt that body. And that was the beginning of the man Jesus. He wasn't merely, you know, a a mindless body that God moved around like a puppet or something. He wasn't just a human that descended from Adam through all the genetics. But he was a specific creation. He, though he derived his um, nutritional substance through the umbilical cord and all of those things from Mary's mother, he did not derive his genetics from her. His body was created in her womb. Without any of the um, deformities that have um, developed in the human genome through history. His body was created. Not only was he not um, Joseph's seed, he wasn't Mary's seed. His body was created in her womb, not her fallopian tubes. And, um, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's a mystery to contemplate. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, in, uh, in discussing these things, the very nature of the divine, in a figure, Lord, we stand on holy ground, as we do when we open the word, the scriptures. And we are thankful, Lord, that our forbearing with us as a parent is with a toddler that smears his food on his face, on the garment of his parents with no evil intent but born of ignorance thou art so compassionate with us Father as we lovingly seek to understand the divine the greatness of our God and we entreat and supplicate Lord that we would be increasingly illuminated and filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered Lord to live as witnesses our eyes have never seen Christ resurrected we cannot witness that as the apostles did but Father our souls have partaken of his divine nature And we pray, Lord, that would increase abundantly among us and that we can be witnesses of the living Christ and hold forth Christ to this generation. Manifest thyself to us more and more, Lord. And strengthen us to abide in thy vine. Bring forth fruit to thy glory and the good of men. Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.